Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. There are a couple of unfamiliar faces here, and so uh, if anybody is new here, please, at the end of the evening, introduce yourself so I can uh, know who you are. And um, for the, the past couple of months, we've been spending Tuesday nights sitting and then going slowly through an essay, uh, The Eight Stages of Monastic Practice, which we finished. All eight stages. Last week. And um, as promised, now we're going to methodically study uh, a Mahayana Buddhist text called the Lotus Sutra. And um, this will take us a minimum of three or four months. And uh, we're going to go nice and slow. And in order to really get into this text, um, I feel like I have to spend a couple of weeks just defining terms and setting a sort of historical context for this text. Because it really sets up the framework of Mahayana Buddhism, which is the background of everything that we do here. And I think maybe if I try to balance reaching your heart and being an academic uh, every Tuesday, um, we'll be successful together. Um, Also, uh, this is really intimidating. Because the Lotus Sutra is uh, a text that's really outside of my style of thinking. And um, so I have uh, places in the Lotus Sutra that I love, and a lot of the style of the text that is just a bit outside of how I normally uh, think about myself and think about the world. And it's why I chose the text. So I'm setting myself a little bit of a challenge, and maybe it will be one for all of us. Um, And um, I I thought about this even just when we were finishing... uh, practicing, you know, just when we were bowing. I've been talking a lot about bowing lately, and certainly those of you who were on the retreat this past weekend with Enkyo Roshi, we did a lot of bowing. And um, when you bow at the end of sitting, um, it's not a bow uh, towards me or towards uh, 
the Buddha, but it's bowing towards this moment and the whole of life that is this moment. And simultaneously, we feel the bows that one another uh, create. And actually, the way you bow really influences how the person beside you decides to bow. And um, bowing is a really wonderful practice, and it's also a really beautiful greeting. One of the intimate things about bowing, and and I've talked about this a lot lately, is just the way that um, it creates a space. It carves out a space between two people where they don't actually meet, which I think really, you know, touches that space uh, of love and the the kind of mystery um, between people the place in two people that can't ever really meet. And it's kind of what's happening when you bow. Unlike a handshake, which maybe seems more intimate. Can I shake your hand? You know. Usually, now, if you live in Toronto, you try to squeeze the other person's hand harder <laughs> to show who has the power. You know. But most places, you just shake their hand. And actually, the history of the handshake, for those who don't know, is... It's not actually a new, it's not a very old gesture of greeting. It's originally uh, to show that you don't have a weapon, that you're not carrying anything, you know. And, um, and so in a way, that's a kind of uh, security. When I shake your hand, I know you haven't got a gun, you know, unless you're quick, you know. <laughs> um, but the nice thing about bowing, I think, is it's the kind of physical gesture of making your whole body equal to somebody else's body and also having some space between you. It's, a, it's kind of a beautiful thing. And I, I would like it if you would meditate on bowing as much as you can every chance you get. For those of you who are in the precepts course, we do a lot more bowing than coming on Tuesday night. We have more form in that in that course, um, and in a way, this kind of touches on the Lotus Sutra, because actually, I, I think the main principle in the Lotus Sutra is the kind of playing down of the Buddha as a person, and instead thinking of the Buddha as a kind of um, cosmic quality that the Buddha is. Uh, the uh, awakening in all of us. And in every single sentient form. What's awake in every sentient form is uh, Buddha, this principle. And when you bow, I think you can ask yourself, where's the Buddha? Where is the Buddha when I'm bowing? And if you think, oh, it's the statue over there, maybe you've missed the principle in the bow. And this is kind of what the Lotus Sutra is is dealing with. Could you just turn up the lights a tiny bit? Because I actually have a lot of notes tonight. Um, Oh, that's that's plenty. So, 
In order to really go through this, I wanted to define terms, and so one of the things I did was, you know, really turn to what the academics are writing about. And uh, I've been learning, to my real discomfort, that pretty much anything that was written about Buddhism before 1990 is completely wrong. <laughs> really, I really mean that. <laughs> and um, this is, for somebody like me, a kind of uncomfortable thing to see. And, you know, history is kind of like a, a moving target, you know. And it actually just made me reflect, too, for all of us, how our history is always being updated. Every time you look at your own history, you're, you're seeing it in a new way. And so it's moving. Even though you think, oh, that's that story that created this structure. But is that, is that true, really? Can you really see a structure the same way twice? It's like maybe hearing sound. You hear a great piece of music, and it moves you. And you keep replaying it to get that feeling again. And you can never really do it. You know? And um, so history is a lot like this. And um, a lot of the things that I thought about Buddhist history that gave rise to the Lotus Sutra, scholars have really shown is actually just wrong. <laughs> You know, and uh, so I thought I would talk a little bit about that tonight, because uh, I think it's important to understand how uh, these practices developed. So first of all, um, when the Buddha died, um, there were <coughs> s several meetings that were called councils, where people met and got together to talk about what the teachings were, and the teachings started to be written down and codified, or actually primarily it was an oral tradition. And um, over time, there was an argument. And one of the things that happened was there was a group of elders called the Theravada group. Has anyone heard this term before? Theravada. And... Um, one of the issues that came up was around money. So this is a time in India where the first cities on the planet were being developed along the Gangetic Plain. There had never been cities of this size before. And one of the things that comes with cities is that your life becomes about money. And the Buddhist monks... Um, were not allowed to touch money, physically touch money. And um, some Theravada monks nowadays still don't deal with money. And um, you can't really move in the world without living with money, somehow, whether you're physically touching it or not. And anyways, this became a real issue in the cities. And so there was a meeting about it, and there was a falling out, and um, there are many different versions of the story, and I'm going to say, save you all the details, but the, the Theravadans, uh, the elders, uh, separated, and there was some voting that happened, and the majority, the Mahasanga, the bigger Sangha, um, separated from the Theravadans. 
And this is where you get the term Mahayana. Maha means greater, the majority. And um, that's one version of the story. Another version of the story is that when the Buddha died, there were arhats, which are perfect beings, perfectly enlightened. And it's a really nice thing when there are perfectly enlightened beings around. I don't know if you've ever known any. But one of the problems with perfectly enlightened beings is that they make mistakes. And they have shadows, even though they're perfect. So the arhats were being watched. And as the Buddha died, people started seeing that maybe the arhats were not as perfect as they thought they were. And... um, This caused a major problem, wouldn't you think? Mm -hmm. If you think all these being, you know, there's all these teachings about becoming perfectly enlightened, and then you really check out. Has anyone ever done this? Have you ever had a teacher and you know, you really, we went through this, I think, in the eight stages of monastic practice, where your teacher is perfectly enlightened, and then, you know, they fall a little. And actually, what really falls is, is you. You know, because hopefully, if it's a good teacher, they don't think they're perfectly enlightened. You know, even though they think that you're perfectly enlightened, <laughs> that's the flip. And so, what happens is they start doubting whether there can be perfect enlightenment. And the basic uh, root metaphor for the whole project gets questioned. And then, what the Mahayana Buddhists start doing is they start um, becoming less interested in the Buddha as a person. You see, if you have to make the person perfect, then you set yourself up. And any of you who are perfectionists know this. One, right? This is the major problem with being a perfectionist, is that you can never win, and you don't really want to win. Because if a perfectionist ever gets something perfect, then they lost the game. Because then they have nothing to do. Uh, I like to think about this sometimes as like trying to clean your sink. You clean a sink with a sponge, and then when it's clean, your sponge is dirty. (laughs) And then you have to figure out how to clean the sponge. And so you put it under the water, you clean the sponge, and then the sink is dirty. And then so you wipe it off as best you can, and then you get it all perfect, and then you put the sponge on the shelf. And then underneath the sponge (laughs) is a stain. And perfectionists are like this, right? You keep trying to get it perfect, but secretly you don't ever really want to get it perfect, because then you'd have to deal with what's left. You see? And what's left for the people at this time is to see that those people they thought were perfect are not so perfect. So the response is to take the Buddha and make him more mythic more cosmic and make the Buddha a principle rather than a person. And for those of you who have studied at Center of Gravity for the last couple of years, we really are influenced by contemporary thinkers like Stephen Batchelor, who really tries to make the Buddha a person. Yeah. So the Mahayanas are saying, well, to deal with the fact that everyone's trying to be perfect, Let's just take the Buddha and make him otherworldly. And then it's okay for you, because you know you can't ever measure up to that. Now, they don't make him like a creator god or something. 
They just make him a principal. In other words, there's this sense of Buddha as just the possibility of being awake. Rather than a person who became perfect. Which I don't know about you, because it's a bit of a relief. (laughs) And I also think they were doing this very consciously. And uh, last night I was talking to Erin about this. and, And she said, you know, it's interesting. And I think Mike alluded to this too. How postmodern this way of working is. And how we often think we're so advanced in our way of thinking that, you know, we can see through the arc of theory and not trust these big umbrella statements. And, and then at the same time, you know, people have always been doing this, actually. Taking a system, seeing its shadow and then creating something in the system to deal with the shadow of the system. And so this is what they were doing with the Buddha. Um, I also think, in a way, it's what we're always doing with each other. When we're here, we're inhaling and exhaling. And actually, after a while, you start to realize that you're not doing the inhaling and exhaling. It's just the natural world breathing your body. And when I inhale, I'm inhaling Katya's exhale. And then when I exhale, Lori inhales my transformation of Katya's transformation of Sarah's breath. So literally we're breathing each other inside out that we're turning each other inside out just by breathing here together. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And then we start to see that this breath that we think is so mine is actually just a kind of principle of the natural world that animates us, that aspirates us, literally. And in a way, this is what the Mahayanists were trying to do. They're saying to the Theravadins, you're following all these rules. You're doing all these practices. Theravada is like, it's like blue-collar Buddhism in a way. You know, you just kind of like roll up your sleeves and you're like, okay, I got this thing to do here and I'm just going to get rid of this defilement, you know, and, and get pure. And, and like there's work to do. And, and, and sit and start doing the work. You know? And the Mahayanas, you can un- understand, they're probably like, Where's the love, man? Where's the joy? You know, you're following the list and following the rules, and what about love? What about the joy of just being alive and being awake with all sentient beings? Being awake simultaneously right now with all sentient beings. It's easy maybe to say, oh, Elaine and I are breathing the same molecules but like the squirrels outside. Everything that's hibernating. The trees are breathing in the same stuff right now, simultaneously. I had this feeling once chopping wood where I was just getting ready to chop. I was on a retreat and my job was to chop wood. And I was getting ready to chop a piece of wood. And when I looked at the wood, the piece of wood, it looked like it was... (gasps) 
<laughs> holding its breath. It was a profound thing that I then became obsessed with for the whole retreat. And uh, it was really an amazing experience. It was like I could just see in the bark. It went, you know. And um, then, of course, for wood to burn, it's burning breath. You know, it's amazing to think about, really. And um, sometimes we forget this level. And so the Mahayanas, they're trying to use the imagination to bring this level back. And um, so there are a few things that are different about Mahayana Buddhism from the Theravada Buddhism, from the early Buddhism. And I want to mention some of those things. So the first thing is um, an emphasis on love and compassion over analytical and austere practices. So rather than really analyzing the Abhidharma, for those of you who don't know the Abhidharma, like right at the end of the Buddha's life, the, the text gets so dense, so complex, and so dry. And there are well-known uh, kind of masters like Shariputra who mastered that stuff and still didn't wake up. And so there's an emphasis on love and compassion and an attitude that does not emphasize liberation. So to really focus on our relational uh, ability and quality um, de-emphasizes my liberation. Because I'm so bound up with you. Literally, if we're breathing the same breath and we share so much, then we're bound, to, we're tangled. So how, how can I just go wake up separate from you? Does this make sense? Second, um, that liberation is not for yourself. It's for the benefit of others. And you can't do it alone. So you don't wake up alone. You wake up with others through others, as others. And you know, I think for all of us, maybe this actually is a kind of wake-up. Because maybe we too are thinking about liberation. Again, nowadays, post-enlightenment. Post-enlightenment. We've already been enlightened, and it still isn't working. You know? And so now we're post-enlightenment, we're not even modern, we're not even post-modern. We're post-post-enlightenment, post-post-modern. And still, maybe we just haven't got it yet. That the more we think about our own liberation, the more we separate from others, and the less we can really be of service. Because we think that we can be liberated. That this self that's separate, this atomized self, this monolithic entity inside of me, somehow is going to wake up. And the Mahayanas, thousands of years ago, said, well, well, if we're all bound up, then you cannot be awake until the last blade of grass is awake. And the way I think about that is kind of like 
I'm practicing to kind of hurry this up for you. <laughs> and like my job is to like make sure everyone's gone out the door and then I'll be the last person to shut the door and be like, okay, awake. <laughs> and your job also is to hurry up and get out the door. And we're all trying to get out the door together, except the door is, is this. And we're trying to get into this together. Because the problem, our suffering, is from not being in this together. Pursuing every path we can of shopping for self-centered happiness. Another, the goal of practice is not to be a Buddha. It's to be a Bodhisattva. Not a Buddha, but a bodhisattva. In other words, the intention is to serve others, wanting to help others in every way. So, the original sort of image of a bodhisattva is Avalokiteshvara in India. And uh, if you've ever seen some of the most popular versions of Avalokiteshvara, and there is a temple in Kyoto that I've always wanted to go to, to see there's one version of Avalokiteshvara in Kyoto where Avalokiteshvara is both male and female and has a thousand arms and in every single arm has a tool. So like in one hand is a pair of scissors, a rope, a measuring tape, you know, um, uh, a needle, a bed. A pillow, a soft hand. And the deity of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, is represented as somebody who has a lot of tools. These are all tools. And this is an interesting to reflect on, you know, like, do you have a lot of tools? What are they? How could you take how you've suffered? And use that wisdom to share with others, to serve others. Some people will do it with with music. And some people will do it just in the hospital with their parent. Really knowing how to hold your mother or father's hand. Caring for them. And... um, Last night I, I gave a talk at Mount Sinai Hospital, and um, first we meditated, and then when, when I when I rang the bell and then realized where we were, I was just so aware of being in the hospital, and all the good news that people get, and all the bad news, and how it can go like in five minutes: good news, bad news, good news. And then sitting in a room with all of these doctors, nurses, palliative care doctors, psychiatrists. And I said, you know, um, you're doing service work. And I could just see everyone's head nodding. Like that they hadn't thought for a while about how they're serving. They've been mostly thinking about their jobs, you know. And I think sometimes when we forget what a bodhisattva is, we become a Buddha 
I mean, I want to be Buddha. The word bodhi means awake or intelligent, and sattva means being. It also comes from Indian philosophy pre-Buddha, which is one of the gunas. For those of you who have studied yoga philosophy, you know there are three gunas, and the one that is most illuminated is sattva. And this is, you know, the, the illumination or awakening process is being a bodhisattva. Um, last thing I want to mention about Mahayana Buddhism is that the literature is not psychological, it's not technical, and it's not down to earth. It's imaginative, it's mythic, and the value is your imagination. Your ability to constantly reimagine who and what you are. This is very different than early Buddhism. So we have Avalokiteshvara with all these tools. This is an example of that. Or here beside me, we have Kuan Yin with her um, vase. And Kuan Yin has one tool. And it's just a vase. And her vase is collecting your tears, all of your tears, the joyful tears and the painful tears. And she's pouring your tears back into the ocean. Your tears are salt water, if you notice this. Maybe you've forgotten, but you probably knew this when you were a kid, when you used to cry. And um, she's taking your tears and saying, it's okay, with her right hand, like this. When a Buddha does this, it means no fear. It's kind of, have you ever had someone do this to your chest? Or put their hand on your back? It's okay. And then you cry. And it's okay. And your tears just go into the water ways. And it's okay because they're not yours. They're just going back again. And they'll come back again, too. It's okay. And it's okay. And um, that's her only tool. It's a good tool. You know, it's a really good tool. It's a good tool. But I still want to see the thousand tools. Next April, I'm going to go to Kyoto to go see that. That uh, Hopefully it will still be there. It's like 800 years old or something. So anyways, the Mahayana school uh, starts leaving India. And the place where Mahayana really developed, which is kind of a new area scholars are really focusing on, is actually Afghanistan and Pakistan before Buddhism starts going to China and Japan. So a lot of the Mahayana texts actually that are being discovered now are being discovered in Afghanistan. And of course, you know, when the Muslims invaded India and a lot of these areas, a lot of these texts got wiped out. And so there's actually not a lot there. But it's interesting how scholars are finding so many texts never been translated into English. The Lotus Sutra is one of so many texts, but we didn't know that until recently. Yeah. What language are they, those texts in? Sanskrit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, 
one of the most important, uh, the most important translation of the Lotus Sutra was from Sanskrit to Chinese by Kurama Jiva. And Kurama Jiva was kind of like the King James of the Lotus Sutra. He did for the Lotus Sutra what King James did for the Bible, basically. And uh, then the Lotus Sutra appears in China in a school called the Tendai School, which later in Japan becomes the uh, Tentai School. And um, that school becomes in China like the main school of... It becomes like the Catholic Church. Maybe these are not the best analogies. <laughs> and then has, and has many like Protestant split-offs. And all the schools of Mahayana Buddhism come out of that Chinese school of Tendai Buddhism. Uh, in fact, Dogen, who many of you have studied, was originally ordained as a Tendai Buddhist priest. And the Chinese were incredible because what was happening is, you see, India had like a 600-year jump on Buddhism, right? So by the time these texts start coming to China, they have no idea what to do. And they're coming fast, like all at once. So they start creating these complex and very elaborate systems that I won't get into for how to deal with these texts and how to order them. And this becomes actually the foundation for uh, later Mahayana Buddhism. And meanwhile, in India, Buddhism then, over the next several hundred years, starts getting mixed up with Hinduism and Tantra and starts becoming really colorful and then goes to Tibet. So that's why Tibetan Buddhism got the India Tantra thing, which is why it looks so different than the earlier Buddhism that goes to China and Japan and Afghanistan. Does this, this make sense? I hope I'm not losing you. I, it, this stuff's really actually really important because it's going to come out in the, in the Lotus Sutra. And for those of you who are yogis, Hatha yogis who practice here, it's interesting because then what happens is, is that the, the Tibetan Buddhists in Tibet then really get the tantric thing uh, refined. And then it comes back, for example, a century ago through Krishnamacharya into yoga um, through the practice of bandhas and kriyas, etc. That stuff all gets refined only a couple hundred years ago, between the last four or five hundred years, through the Tibetans who really took Tantra and reworked it. But we're not talking about that tonight, even though we could. Yeah. One question. That's Sri Lanka. Because mm-hmm. I know they have a major presence of Buddhism. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Especially back then, I don't know. Yeah. We could look it up, though. Yeah. Paul Williams, The History of Mahayana Buddhism. I'm all over Paul Williams. Okay. Good luck. Yeah. Okay, one page a month. So, maybe the Mahayanas thought that the Abhidharma was just, or the Theravadins were just missing the point. Could you see that? 
like all your lists and the folk and the fighting, like the money you touch, money you don't touch, money. Maybe like, what about your heart? What is this doing for your heart? And I think this is a really fabulous thing, and it's so important that we look at it this way. I think is that there was a conscious decision to make the Buddha larger than life so that humans stop trying to be the Buddha and instead become bodhisattvas, which is the desire to practice to awaken others. And that you can't be fully awake until the last sentient being is awake. It's a radical and very conscious reworking of the Dharma, which was called at the time a turning of the wheel. A turning of the wheel. And actually, I I was going to get into this next week, but this turning of the wheel actually becomes so ritualized in Mahayana Buddhism, where they say even, this is the Lotus Sutra, and it's not even a text, it's empty. There's no one who's reading this text. There's nobody who's listening to this talk tonight. There's nobody who's giving the talk. This whole thing is so interdependent, it's empty. And you keep thinking you're a consumer. And you need to consume this text to get something from it. Because you need to awaken. But there is no awakening, because there's no being that can be awake. In other words, you can never get enlightened. And so even though you hold this text, there's no text. And so what they would do is they would pick it up, and they had a practice where they would just turn it. (laughs) Because when you go to a book now, 2011, you want there to be a beginning and a middle and an end, and you're a consumer and you want to get something from the book. Right? Mm -hmm. Maybe a little romance. (laughs) Or like, I am so post-postmodern, I'm just going to hang out in the plotless fiction. And, you know, or I'm just going to spend the next month reading footnotes. (laughs) Um, But actually, what if there wasn't anything you can learn? And actually, this became a ritualized object for you to remember to serve with your whole body because like bowing you can't talk about it right I mean this is how far they took it and this is a kind of an interesting thing really to to really contemplate so um, there's less emphasis on the sutras on the teachings in the texts and a more emphasis on imagining a world of interconnection. And the first time the Buddha really preaches this in the Mahayana version is in the Avatamsaka Sutra, which Roshi talked about a little on the weekend. And the way the Buddha gives his first teaching in the Avatamsaka Sutra is he takes a parasol, a mirrored parasol, and he puts it down in front of him, and he invites all sentient beings to come look. And then they look into the parasol and they see that every mirror in this mirrored and jeweled parasol reflects themselves 
and all the others. And that every jewel in the parasol reflects every other jewel in the parasol with their reflection in it. And then like thousands of people have an awakening. And the Buddha never says a word. Which is kind of a reminder to all of us that you have to actually do it. Like waking up, you can't think your way to it. Imagine if you could. Imagine if you got awakened, if you got enlightened, and then you got there and you said, oh, enlightenment, just like I thought it was going to be. Just like I planned. You know. The other thing that happens is it lets the Buddha off the hook. It lets you off the hook. And uh, I came across something that I, I thought I, w- I would read to you. Um, there's a musician I really like named Bonnie Prince Billy. And he used to be called Will Oldham. And uh, I was reading this interview that was really interesting about why he changed his name. And so I thought I, thought I would just read you a little excerpt here. Part of the reason I changed my name was wanting to preserve an identity of each record because of the musicians involved. But in an ideal world, records would be filed in record stores by title rather than by artist, as they are in video stores. I think it's better to identify with the work rather than the people who make the work. You can put your faith in a piece of work, but not in a group of people you don't know. I don't know what the point would be. The songs are not meant to be real life. They're meant to have a psychic rather than a factual bearing on the listener. It's rare that a song grounded in reality moves me because I don't feel like I'm getting the whole story. Songs are made to exist in and of themselves. They're not autobiographical. And yet there's a reality in every single page. It's real life of the imagination. Real life of the imagination. I really like this. So he goes on, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, to say that when he's on stage and he's singing a ballad, he started to feel that everybody was looking at him as if he was singing about his life. So he felt that he couldn't perform anymore. So what we did is he just changed his name. And then he felt like he could go back on stage. And for those of you who know the history of Bob Dylan, he did the same thing. The more personal his songs get, the more he started wearing face paint. Because he didn't want people to continually think that he was writing songs about himself. And was adamant that these were not autobiographical songs. Even though you read it, and you listen to it, and you think it's Bob Dylan. But really, what it's touching is what's universal in your own heart but we project it onto the performer. And Bonnie Prince Billy goes on to say in this interview, maybe if you listen to songs by performers that you really like and listen to the songs that you don't like, that fall flat, maybe they're the ones that are more grounded in the autobiographical reality of their life. And then he starts going through the Nick Cave repertoire and talking about which songs work and which songs don't work and why. 
And I think this is an interesting thing to explore. And this is what happens with the Mahayana Buddhists. They take the Buddha and, and they leave him alone. So that we stop trying to be a perfect Buddha and start paying attention to the universal. And to pay attention to the universal through the particular, through each other. Does this make sense? Any questions? I don't know if I'm going to keep going. But. I'm sorry, did you say there was an article about <coughs> Will Oldham or a book or whatever? Oh, yeah, it's an interview. Uh, uh, it's called Lazy Interview. Mm-hmm. Just Google Lazy Interview and you'll find it. <laughs> cool. Cool. <clears throat> um, it seems a, a paradox in that. If you know you just have the book and you spin it around, you don't bother reading what's in it. But then, that in essence, then there's no specific teaching. Um, yeah. And in that case, you know, why show up or whatever? I mean, you could yeah. have done something else. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I guess it, that worries me I, in the sense that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean. It, Maybe I could see it as sort of transcending the particular, but at the same time it also seems as though it, it denies what, what gave rise to it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, so the whole teaching in Mahayana Buddhism is emptiness, which you can translate as interdependence. That because things are empty of an inherent essence... They're interconnected with everything else. They're so interconnected with... You are so built of non-human material that you explode as a human. You're not human in the way you think you're human. And so when you really study the particular, you find the universal. It's like non-dualists who are only looking for the non-dual. All you see is dual everywhere. And the dualists only see the non-dual. And the non-dual people, they're like totally neurotic. Because they're always critiquing dual, that's dual. (laughs) That's subject-object. So for the Mahayana, it's like the whole thing is free, is empty. In fact, some scholars say that actually the non-dualists invented dualism. (laughs) Just to have something to poke at. (laughs) So in other words, what I mean by that is the word shunyata or emptiness means shu means to swell. So even though we think of emptiness as a negative, the teaching is you can't cognize emptiness because there's nothing to hold. So you see that what you think is a thing is actually made up of an interdependent, intercreated, it's interbeing. Like last week, we said, what if you stopped saying, I am, and you started saying, I inter-am? Every time you say, I am, just replace it. Just go, oh, I inter-am feeling hungry. (laughs) Or I'm upset with you. Or, I mean, every time you use the term. And, And this is emptiness. It's the working of emptiness. And it's trying to take emptiness from a technical teaching to something you live through interdependence. 
So you can meditate on that a little. Mm-hmm. Yes? They're saying that uh, says that uh, admire the art, not the artist. So uh-huh. it's the same. So in Vipassana they say uh, why they made the Buddha into uh, non-figure is because they want you to emulate his qualities. Uh-huh. Because yeah. if I make you an idol, I'm uh-huh. going to hate you tomorrow because yeah. that's human nature. Yeah. So if yeah. I try to emulate somebody who I like, yeah. It makes me a better person. Yeah. If I just go to church yeah. and knock my head on the floor, it doesn't mean that I am that good. It just if I emulate person that I admire, yeah. I become better. But if uh-huh. I just go to church uh-huh. and I say I'm whatever I am, yeah. it doesn't make me better. It just uh-huh. makes me stupid. Uh-huh. So that's that's the emptiness that you're actually supposed to be in, uh, to experience, not to intellectually understand uh-huh. yeah and yeah and and <coughs> we have to intellectually understand we're humans and then so, we have to experience uh-huh just this stuff yeah so if you're like earthy the lotus sutra is going to be really hard because what it's doing is it's trying it's going to blow your imagination so actually next week we're all going to drop acid before we <laughs> in order to really get the feel of it. And then the week after, we'll do it, you know, clean. So, I don't know if there'll be more people or fewer people here. It's so hard to say. Tie-dyes and whatever. Moccasin. Well, whatever. Anyways, yeah. So this suggestion of empty, is that what I'm trying to pull away from is that the context um, determines... The experience, <clears throat> and and that the practice is in the service of that of that context. Yeah, I don't know. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, we're going to do three months. We're going to study emptiness for three months, which is kind of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> what are what are you studying? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> With others or. <laughs> So, so again, like, let's not decide what emptiness is. Let, let's just kind of like, let this thing work on us. You know? and it's kind of getting back to what I'm saying with the Lotus Sutra. Like, you think that there's a book that you're going to read to get something from. And what if instead we even approach the Lotus Sutra? Like, let's, just like the last essay, let's together read this text... And just let it season us. Like, let's just see what happens. Let's see, instead of what I like about it, what I don't like about it, what I'm getting out of it, how I'm going to practice it, let's just let it kind of work on us, you know? And um, then we might start to see that there's no one really reading the text. And there's no real text there. It's your life. Just like when you're sitting with your parent in the hospital, you hold their hand, and there's no father and son, mother and daughter. It's just holding hands. It's the space between bowing. And maybe the greatest human tragedy for all of us is when we just don't allow that to happen. We say, I'm busy. I'm busy. Or we say it differently, we say, I'm busy. 
And it's just like, I, I, can't, I can't do that right now. I'm busy. And then we, we really like completely miss uh, this opportunity to feel the bodhisattva ideal of serving all beings, in, including this being. Socially engaged dharma is not just doing social acts. It's, it's also expressing interdependence at every, in everything you do. Oh, but I'm busy. So, um, I'll also warn you that... Um, the Buddha really never ends up preaching the Lotus Sutra. Uh, the first few chapters go on and on about how the Buddha is going to preach the Lotus Sutra. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to create a punchline, but actually, there's no Lotus Sutra. And this text actually is really just about how the Buddha is going to preach the Lotus Sutra, and then people remembering when the Buddha taught the Lotus Sutra, and then people talking about how they forgot what the Buddha taught when he taught the Lotus Sutra. And then the whole teaching is about how the Lotus Sutra is empty. So actually, we never really are going to study the Lotus Sutra, even though it comes under this title, the Lotus Sutra. So, before we finish, um, I'm going to work for the next few months with two translations of the Lotus Sutra. And I thought you can just read one, but you can't. <laughs> so, um, if you had to only buy one, I would pick this one, which is Burton Watson's translation. It makes it into the 90s, actually. 1993. Columbia University Press. And Gene Reeves. The Lotus Sutra, which is not in here. <laughs> Just like you are not really in there. Have you ever tried to find you in there? Ever? Has anyone ever tried to find themselves in there? In themselves? Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyways... I, I, I really recommend that you have your own copy because probably next week I'm actually really going to get into the text. And uh, the complicated thing about the Lotus Sutra that I'll talk about next week is that everything's repeated twice in it. It's really frustrating. <laughs> um, and next week we're going to talk about why that is. And uh, so it's good to have your own copy so we can kind of Go through it if you can. Uh, no, I don't know. Bookstore. <laughs> Snow Lion would have it. World's biggest bookstore has a great Mahayana Buddhist section. 
You could ask Type to order it. Amazon. Um, so I guess the last thing I'll say about being a bodhisattva that maybe can be your homework is um, well, just just that we suffer, you know, and other people suffer, and like to really be open to the way that you're tangled and that other people's suffering is also your suffering. And uh, we're here now and we're also in Egypt and we're also in Tripoli. We're in Libya. We're also um, swimming in the Ganges and in the Don River. And um, to really be with people you know who are suffering, to really care for them, is to be a bodhisattva and to see that there's nobody suffering and nobody looking after them at the same time. With your teenagers, to really see how they're suffering, to really see that, and to see how there's nobody suffering, and how you're both suffering, and to be in this planet at this time, and to really feel the suffering of this earth, and also that there's so much beauty, like in this room and to see that there's nobody suffering at the same time. Except then, to watch for that part that then goes, I'm busy. I can't really care for you or any of the, uh, I'm really busy, really busy. So I'll leave you with that as homework and we'll finish chanting.